In today's podcast, we interview Dr. Scott Tinker, Director of the Bureau of Economic Geology, the State Geologist of Texas, and a professor holding the all-day endowment chair in the Jackson School of Geosciences at the University of Texas in Austin. Titles aside, Dr. Tinker is a renowned leader in the energy space, bringing industry, government, academia, and non-governmental organizations together to address major societal changes in energy. Founder of Switch Energy Alliance, Dr. Tinker has recorded two documentaries, Switch and Switch On, which focus on energy transition and global energy poverty. In this episode, my business partner, Michael Byamford, joins the conversation as we explore Dr. Tinker's breadth of knowledge, including discussions around why renewable energy isn't actually renewable, why using black and white terms like clean and dirty, good and bad, isn't a good way to describe any energy source, an overview of the global energy landscape, and a discussion around how the demonization of hydrocarbons hurts everyone and what we can do to stop it. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this exciting conversation with Dr. Tinker. Well, thanks for being on the show today, Scott. We uh, really appreciate having you as a guest and excited for the conversation today. Well, I appreciate the invite. I'm looking forward to the visit. So can you give us an intro here as to how you came into shooting documentaries on energy around the world? Well, it's one of those stories that is a complete accident. I actually was being interviewed for a different documentary by a guy named Harry Lynch, who's a filmmaker. This is back about 13 or 14 years ago, and he was shooting a piece on the early shale gas development in the Barnett and interviewed me. And the interview was fine. He read some of my stuff. He said, man, you know, I really think you're good on camera. <laughs> Have you ever written a book? And I said, no. I'm too lazy. <laughs> he, said, he said, you want to make a movie? And I said, sure. You know, what would that take? And, and he said, well, you make a decent one for this much or a pretty good one for this. Or if we want to make a great film, it costs this much. And this was in about 2008. And I said, well, let's make a, let's make a great one. I can raise that money. Of course, 09 hit in the, the big global recession. But we did it. We were hand to mouth a lot of the way, which is how it turns out how most films get made. But we traveled around 11 countries and shot 500 hours of film and made Switch. And that was our my intro to the film business. I still am a neophyte, to be sure. Uh, <laughs> can know my way around, but but Harry is the he's the brains. <laughs> huh. I'm just the pretty face. That's <laughs> and not very pretty. <laughs> very humble of you, but. Uh... I think there's a lot more to it than that. Um, what, so what, was it a kind of a drop everything moment or was it, uh, you know, you were already in a, in a state where you felt pretty open to making a big life change like that. Cause that seems pretty significant to, to just pick up and, and start shooting uh, clips and videos all across the world. Uh, that's a big life change. It seems like. Yeah. Interestingly enough, I didn't change much. I, I used to work in the industry for 17 years, and I came to UT Austin as a as a professor and head of this big research unit uh, in 2000, so 21 years ago now. And I've kept that job. That's my day job now. As a running that big unit and the faculty roles, there are some freedoms to do research, and this is my research. So the shooting and traveling and all that is kind of we consider that time in the field if you will to gather data and information and and do our research so when we make a documentary film we don't pre-write it we don't pre-script it we have some treatment it's called to take a look at directionally where we think we might go but as we're gathering interviews and shooting site locations and getting learning and surprise it it tends to take us other places and then you come back and go into what's called post-production and that's when really the story begins to evolve. And it took a year in post for, for Switch, and it took a year in post for Switch On. And that's really when you put it all together to try to tell a story and do some test screenings. And the audience says, eh, I didn't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> you know, where are you headed? And, and you come back to the drawing board, literally, and, and craft some things and maybe insert some graphics and, and combine some scenes and even though you love the scene the most ever because you were both there and it was the coolest thing, it doesn't fit in the story. So 
it gets launched and and that's how it all gets done when you're when you're making a, a documentary of the old style as we would be called one that actually is fact factual <laughs> and true <laughs> so you know a lot of films get made these days that tell the exact story the filmmaker wants to make and they shoot just enough to tell that story and a leave a lot of other things out that would you would kind of go oh well that changes things and that's really the challenge with documentary filmmaking is to make sure that you are true to uh, the world, if you will, because there's always freedoms. But and you got to tell a story that's engaging, but you it has to be something that people don't feel like they were duped later when something else comes out. You, know, you completely didn't tell us that that changes everything. And so I don't so think our films do that. Scott, can you kind of talk about uh, the inspiration behind uh, Switch uh, back when you guys started and then kind of how the programs evolved to Switch On, which is now available for people to stream on the Internet? Sure. Uh, I was speaking on energy a lot. I still do. I've been lucky. You know, I've been to 65 countries in the world and given about 800 talks now invited kind of lectures and things all over the industry and the governments and the academics. And that's what I was doing. And Harry saw some of that. And, and so the inspiration was to try to tell a story about energy where energy was the star. And there were some other films coming out at the time, which we both felt were not really representing the truth about energy, but they were very powerful films nonetheless. And the filmmakers captured the attention of people and particularly younger people and got them directed in, a, in only one way. This is good. This is bad. This is clean. This is dirty. <laughs> and the dialogue continues today. And unfortunately, it's a false narrative and there's no clean energy. There's no dirty energy. They all have dirty components to them, depending on whether it's into the atmosphere, the local air or using a lot of land or mining or manufacturing or landfill disposal or water all environmental impacts depending on the form of energy and nothing is good or bad energy is good you know i i know adam i think you were saying you lived in india for quite a while and you know what happens without energy most people in the modern developed world don't know this we're having a podcast right now across the wires if you will and sitting in comfortable homes but most people in the world don't live like this they simply don't have access to this kind of thing. So after Switch came out, which featured energy as the star, we filmed in 11 countries and we went to the best forms of energy. We looked at the pros and cons, very nonpartisan, very objective, had it peer reviewed by technical people. So we weren't, you know, sometimes you get your own thing going and, and you got to make sure others come in and, and, and put a check on that. That's what the process is about. But we realized later, Harry made a beautiful series on mental health as I was off continuing my energy thing. And I said, Harry, we left off a big chunk of the world in our first film, the world that doesn't have much energy. So we got the band back together and I actually formed a 501c3 company called the Switch Energy Alliance several years ago, raised some money and still are, am, and, and we started filming Switch On. And that is a film looking at parts of the world that don't have any energy or limited any energy from off the grid. So we feature that in Colombia where we bring first solar over an eight day period. And it took two trips before that over a year to get set up to do that to a village in mud huts and thatch roofs and tell that story throughout the film and light bulbs, ceiling fans in their little community hut and one refrigerator freezer. That's it. Remarkable change for them. And we go to uh, the Maasai in Kenya and show what it's like out in that country as well. Uh, very, a giraffe walks by, you know, that kind of, that kind of place where they've never had any electricity. And we bring a 40 watt solar panel and they get some light bulbs and a phone and, and then you go to 120 watts and you can charge a battery for a television. That's one kind off the grid. Another kind is we call it under the grid where you're in the slums in the world that are, there are wires around the cities, but you can't afford the electricity in your own or it's very unstable. It's unsafe because there's cartels and they wire it incorrectly when they steal it and you get electrified and electrocuted. And, and so we show this in the film, not an electrocution, but talking about it. So under the grid. And then we also feature cooking. Cooking is the biggest 
form of energy poverty in the world today, over 2 billion people cooking indoors still with wood or coal of some kind or dung, some biomass. And in doing that, the particulates go into the little home or hut or whatever, and, and we show this, they go way up, like smoking a couple packs of cigarettes for the kids that live there on dirt yeah. floors usually. And, and so 3 million people a year are dying of of various forms of disease from cancers to to pneumonia in the kids and, and cataracts and other kinds of issues from indoor cooking. Three million a year, it's more than malaria and AIDS combined. Mm. And who knew? And it's so solvable right now with cleaner fuels, LPG, which we feature, or an electric cooktop or something else that is just as affordable. So these are what we feature in, in Switch On, and it led us to that. And it's been a remarkable experience to bring those two things together and of course it's led us to a third film <laughs> which we're just starting to concept now so anyway nice so when uh, this is kind of more of a philosophical question but you know if, if scott who recorded switch on was talking to uh scott who re recorded the original switch you know what would be the biggest message that you would give to uh, you know, the earlier version of yourself that was looking at this more on a, a developed world perspective, you know what what was you know maybe a, maybe a heart moment or also maybe more a, a big picture moment that that you could share with with that first version of Scott that shot um, your sure. first documentary. Sure. Yeah, I would look at that version and say, you know, we're not going to be able to cut you into the films with this older version because you have too many wrinkles now. <laughs> <laughs> so make sure you capture everything you need. <laughs> uh, I would tell that. Is for. Yeah, right. I would say to that, Scott, hey, open your eyes. You're missing half the world. You know, by featuring energy where energy exists, you're missing the half the world that has none. And that's arguably a more important part because when you live in energy poverty, you live in economic poverty. And there are major global issues that result from that, from the rights and freedom of women who are going for the water in Africa, cooking indoors. They don't go to the schools when the men do. So they're differentially impacted to, to fertility rates, directly tied to education, tight correlation, lower fertility rates with higher education. And, and lighting in the home begins to allow for education, lighting in the school, simple things. Uh, immigration and migration, massive issue today in the world, of course. And, and people tend to leave places where their families have been for not just centuries, maybe millennia, because there is no longer hope. They have strong men usually uh, who are corrupt and taking and not allowing for democracy to grow or any form of, of economic growth, uh, capital markets of any kind. And so they have to leave or try to leave for something better. Uh, and then, of course, the things you would expect, clothing and food and shelter and clean water and uh, health care, on and on, are tied to lack of energy and then lack of... So when you're in energy inequality or or energy, lack of energy access, you actually live usually in economic poverty as well. And it's spread all over the world, but it's concentrated between the tropics of Cancer and Capricorn, 20 north, 20 south, a lot of severe poverty there and, and lack of energy. And it's also bloody hot. So it conflates with the climate change challenge, which, you know, it's hard for countries in those regions already. And you add a couple of degrees C, it's even harder that said, you can't live in Houston, Texas in summer either in August without air conditioning or, you know, in Stockholm, Sweden, where another famous young citizen is who Sweden consumes more energy per capita than almost any nation on earth because they have to have a lot of lights in the winter and heat. So while we're all out there talking about things, we are, we in the developed world have access to energy that changes our climate. And so one way to help people who are going to be ex already experiencing these climates and even hotter is to give energy <laughs> and, and that changes things. So that's, that's, that's the old Scott talking to the younger Scott. 
you know, for me then, when I'm thinking about renewables, it seems like almost a luxury good um, to some extent. When I was in India, um, people were hacking the lack of uh, energy uh, supply with huge grid shuts off shutoffs for eight hours by buying, you know, a single solar panel to charge their uh, fan and their refrigerator. Um, but, you know, it's not any type of, you know, long-term fixture for energy supply because the moment clouds came over, you know, the fan turned off and the fridge turned off. But um, is it, you know, I guess that's a question w- that we're moving into here about different sources of energy and, and you cover it really broadly um, in, in the, the first documentary. Um, but you know, is renewables, is that a luxury good that, you know, only developed countries have, have the time and energy to explore, or is that something that has a global market? Well, we can kind of take that maybe in reverse. If you go out to a billion people in the world today that don't have any electricity, literally a billion with zero, Mostly they live rurally, and you can't get anything else to them except solar panels or maybe a Pico Hydro if they have a river or a micro wind turbine of some kind. Um, there, are no, there are no roads to speak of, no pipelines, no wires. So you can't, that's the only source, distributed renewables, to bring first energy to indigenous and rural areas. And now flip it on its ear. Come back to the wealthy world. Sure, the subsidies for renewables go to who? To rich people. You know, who puts solar on the roof? Rich people, and they get subsidized by who? Everyone. <laughs> so that's kind of odd. Who has a Tesla in their garage? Rich people. Uh, subsidized by who? Everyone. So when I when I talk to students and I talk to all different age demographics, but I say, how do you feel about buying me a Tesla? and they they kind of shake their heads and ironically renewable energy and and the batteries and electric vehicles are one of the more regressive taxes we have because everybody's paying for them and a lot of people can't afford that so along with the price of gasoline and the price of electricity which everybody pays the same and those who make less, therefore, it's a bigger proportion of their income. It's a regressive tax. So I find it hard sometimes politically when the most progressive governors and, and legislatures are imposing regressive taxes with exuberance. New York just did. Uh, Governor Cuomo just this week declined a natural gas pipeline again. And so the price of electricity will go up in New York and it will cost the poor people more proportionally. And it'll be, it'll hurt climate change. It'll hurt the ability to remove CO2 from the atmosphere or decrease the emissions of it because the fastest way to do that is replace coal with something. And the something is often natural gas or nuclear because those are the only things that are always on. So you mentioned when the cloud goes over, it goes off. Most people don't believe you (laughs) because their electricity never goes off. Well, we have what? You know, I don't know how many wind turbines in Texas, about 12,000, the most yeah. by any state times two or three. But the power doesn't go off because we back it up with natural gas load following plants and baseload nuclear and coal. And so we have steady electricity. People think you can do that. And, and it's more expensive when you start going. They say, no, the solar and wind is the cheapest. Well, the panels and turbines are getting cheap, which is great. But when you put it, when you integrate it into a system that makes always on electricity, the electricity is more expensive. Ask Germany, ask New York, ask California, ask Texas. Our electricity prices have gone up a bit as well with all this wind because we have to back it up with things that aren't running a lot of the time. And therefore, when they run, they're expensive. So you integrate all that together. And that's the thing I think most people miss is intermittent sources of wind and intermittent sources of sun, which they always are, uh, period, require other things to be there. And those other things cost money. So that's the challenge. The sun and the wind themselves are renewable, but all the stuff to collect them, the, the turbines, to build the turbines and the solar panels and the batteries to back them up, 
none of that's renewable. You have to mine it all, and then you manufacture it, and then you dispose it all in landfills, including batteries, which are not particularly clean when you start releasing 50 to 100 toxic gases out of a decaying battery. And as you get these giant batteries in cars, it's, it's not one little battery in a Tesla. There's 7,000 lithium-ion batteries in a Tesla S. 7,000 that are cylinders three inches along and an inch in diameter. <laughs> one car. So it's trillions of batteries to electrify half the world's vehicle fleet. And, and we got to mine, manufacture, and dispose all those batteries. It can recycle and use some, but that takes energy. So this is the conversation that I think documentary filmmakers don't tell. I think educators don't tell and politicians don't tell. When we go down the clean and dirty, good and bad road, we're really not helping the conversation of solving anything. So why will, why will natural gas replacing coal hurt climate? You know, well, because if you're not, if you're not going to replace that coal with natural gas, what, what do you replace it with? And how can you scale to that quickly enough? Um, and, and the reality is when Germany put a moratoria, there's a great test case here. Germany put a moratoria on natural gas after the fracking scare, which turned out to be a lot less than people were scared about. And after Fukushima Daiichi, the nuclear, Germany said, eh, let's put the skids to natural gas and nuclear. They started burning more coal again. They were actually importing coal from the U.S. at one point. And so there's CO2 emissions that were nicely coming down as they build nuclear, build gas, build wind, reduce coal, stopped. The emissions decline stopped. It went flat. Shut in gas and nuclear, add coal because you have to have baseload power that's always there when the wind is not blowing and import nuclear power from Germany and other places. So this is... This is a, it's a little bit more complicated than just A, B. You got to be willing to say A, B, C. Energy, economy, environment. Those three E's dance together. And you got to have a steady, a healthy economy underpinned by energy to invest in the environment. That's just the way it works. If you try to cut out the economy, the middleman, if you will, and go, well, let's get rid of all this kind of energy and clean up the environment. There are names for that plan in the U.S. now. <laughs> you can name them. But, uh, you know, call it what you want to. All so-called clean energy and, and everything will be good. In fact, it won't because you're going to be mining the heck out of the world and manufacturing and disposing, A. B, it's intermittent, so you have to have all these other things to back them up anyway, so it becomes more expensive. And the economy suffers because a lot of things are unstable. So this portfolio mix is really important, like with anything. A portfolio of sources of energy matters. It makes things more secure, more stable. And secure energy underpinning a secure economy is vital for a healthy environment. Yeah, Scott, I think those are really good points. And, you know, I'm not sure if you've seen Michael Moore's new documentary, Planet of the Humans. I have. I, I think he does a really good job of, you know, painting that picture that there is no, you know, there's no such thing as clean and dirty, good and bad. Um, you know, the environmental impacts of the surface mining to get that lithium or the other rare earth metals that go into solar panels and the different batteries that are used to store that energy. You know, there's just so much hypocrisy in the world right now as far as what is good and what is bad and what a sustainable transition uh, looks like to sustainable energy resources. So I wanted to kind of see your thought on, you know, all the research world that you've traveled, you know, in your opinion, what does the sustainable energy transition comprise of? Well, two big things, um, the economy and the environment. And so on the economy side, we got to lift the world from poverty. That's doable because that affects so many other issues, which we've already talked about, and continue to maintain the healthy economies that exist in the developed world today. So bring everybody up. On the environment side, we have to clean up the impacts of energy on the atmosphere, to be sure, the climate, but also local air, land, and water, the four pillars of the environment. So cleaning, there's no form of energy that's clean to all four of those. Some things put out atmospheric emissions, burning fossil fuels. 
Some things burn out local air emissions, burning biomass and biofuels of various kinds, including wood. Some things just take a tremendous amount of land, renewable energy, to mine it, manufacture it, deploy it, because the sun and the wind are very low density forms of energy and then dispose of all that stuff. So, uh, some things use a lot of water, both destructively and non-destructively. So nothing's perfect. So a sustainable energy transition will be when we continue to decrease the impacts on our environment and lift the world from poverty into global healthy economy. That's sustainable. And it's not a conversation about replacing this set of fuels with that set of fuels. That's not the conversation. It's about cleaning up all the different fuels for the components that they have that are tough on the environment. I just mentioned them. An analogy would be food. You know, we use a lot of water in agriculture. Uh, we use a lot of fertilizer, soil depletion, runoff into streams. It's dirty. It's destructive on the environment. Are we going to get rid of food? Probably not. Okay. Well, some would say get rid of the meat, but keep the veggies. And others would say get rid of the veggies. Let's just keep the meat. Well, that's two different kinds of food, but they're both energy for our bodies and for our livestock's bodies. So we're going to keep food. Let's keep cleaning up the environmental impacts of food. Let's keep cleaning up the environmental impacts of all forms of energy because every region has access to different kinds. And this, this very tightly focused conversation about leave all this stuff in the ground and don't use nuclear and we'll just solve it with renewables or the other way around. Oil and gas are fine. Why do we need anything else? <laughs> you know, we actually need lots of things. And that's a sustainable transition. Clean them all up. Healthy economy. Is there anybody responsible for running the cost benefit analysis on energy as a whole. Like it seems like a lot of this, uh, you know, originates somewhere and then turns into something else. And then ultimately someone else is manufacturing it. But then at the end of the day, it doesn't seem like anybody has a big picture oversight of the impact of other forms of energy, obviously other than hydrocarbons where, you know, there is a lot of conversation around CO2 tax and things of that nature. But is there, is there any oversight right now um, from any organization, governmental or private for other forms of energy and their environmental impacts? There's plenty on nuclear. There's a lot of watchdog groups on nuclear. Um, ironically, a lot of the people who are concerned about climate change and CO2 and methane emissions also don't like nuclear, which is interesting because nuclear has no emissions. Steam. <laughs> you just, you have a very low volume of waste you have to manage, but it's not an atmospheric or even an air emission. Yeah. So, but there's plenty of watchdog groups on nuclear. And I, then I would say the biofuels is mixed. Some love them. Some, for some reason, we, Europe, half of what Europe calls renewable is actually biomass burning, burning of wood and wood pellets. Mm. And they say that's a zero emissions game because the trees take it up and then we burn the trees and the trees take it, which is really silly, you know, a, trees grow over a 50-year period and you burn it in a day. B, to go from a tree to your oven takes a whole lot of <laughs> logging, trucking, often manufacturing, wood pellets, shipping, trucking, etc. And there's emissions all along the way. So oh, it's a total deforestation too. I mean, and deforestation. Yeah, yeah, completely. So when did we all of a sudden think that cutting down trees for energy was a good thing? I I don't know when that came along. Now, certain forms of cellulosic fuels are interesting. Brazil does cane and they have large areas of land and, and they weren't being used for much else. So they they use sugar cane as a cellulosic source of biomass to create a biofuel, a liquid biofuel, which they can substitute into vehicles instead of gasolines and diesels or CNG. So that, you know, that might be fit for purpose there. And there are a few other places in the world, but so there, as there's a real mixed set of lenses or lights focused on biofuel and biomass of different kinds with a range of opinions about how clean it is or green. And then I would say waves and tides, solar, hydro, let me come to hydro. Hydro gets mixed reviews. Um, some people realize that it's clean, there's no emissions, and there never will be, and it's renewable as long as it's raining and keeps your dam full. Others 
hate them environmentally because you're you're flooding a river valley. So it depends on your opinion. Geothermal has not gotten much traction, but it should. It's renewable. It's below the earth. Uh, not much surface infrastructure. You gotta eventually the heat of that local area wears out. You gotta move your wells, but it. I think geothermal could see a new renaissance. And I'm sure people will have some concerns because you got to drill a well to get to it usually. And I'm talking about the the kind of industrial scale geothermal, if you will. Um, now there's small home and office scale putting in, you know, basically heat pumps uh, 50 to 100 feet down with gathering coils that circulate water that's a steady temperature through your home. And you can either warm up the home in the winter some and supplement it or cool it down in the summer. So that's interesting, a little more expensive. And then solar and wind and, and waves and tides seem to get mostly a free pass. Although there are groups that are looking at the realities more than just the bird kill. That's very real with wind turbines. And even with solar towers, they actually cook the birds when they fly through with the solar towers and they die as they fly through the, the mirrored sunlight, like the old magnifying glass in reverse. But not as much attention to those um, right now. I think as you go to scale with anything, people start to notice it more. So if I start putting up a lot of turbines offshore or all over the landscape and then burying those blades as they corrode and wear out, um, solar panels, etc., take a lot of land. Now you can put them on buildings and we should, you know, the fl a flat top building. Why not put some solar panels up there? Makes sense. Let's use it or something. Collect some electricity uh, through through direct solar conversion. But as you, you know, that's not going to power the world. It takes a lot of land to power the world with photovoltaic solar or uh, reflected solar troughs or towers. And I don't think that those are getting that much attention because mostly it's been deflected that we can use parts of the land that aren't being used for other things. But what that conversation is missing is the mining and the disposal. To make the, the to get the metals and the silicon and the rare earth elements and the and the metals for batteries and and the copper for the turbines and the composites and everything, it's just a tremendous amount of mining. So and, Scott, and, I, it's not sustainable because they wear out. <laughs> so you have to you have to rinse and repeat. <laughs> so no. yeah. So I'm curious. You know, obviously all of these renewable sources, you know, they're great. Solar panels are great during the day when it's sunny. Um, everything is backed up by the grid and the grid is powered by either coal or natural gas. Um, how big of an effect do these renewable technologies actually have on, you know, the overall grid power generating system and the burning of fossil fuels? Because it's my understanding that the grid is always running at a hundred percent. It doesn't go up, it doesn't go down. You know, obviously there's peak load times and lower load times, but how, what effect do these renewable technologies actually have on the grid system and how much energy is actually being burned to power the grid system to a hundred percent? And it, can you see any variance as far as the effectiveness of these new technologies on the grid and kind of what does that look like on a macro scale? Yeah. So the grid, and there, the grid is, there are lots of grids. Um, there are three big ones in the U.S., a Western grid, Eastern grid, and Texas. We, ERCOT, it's called Electricity Reliability Council of Texas, ERCOT. Um, those are the big ones. And then there are subgrids to all of those, and there's rural electric co-ops and all sorts of things. So this grid is a fairly complicated system, okay? And it's not always running at 100%. It, 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 the operators of these various grids have a tremendously challenging job made better now by um, the ability to look at analytics and data in real time, quantified things so they can manage the demand better. But the grid, there's something called the demand curve in its simplest sense. And, and on our website, in our Switch Energy Lab, we go into this and it's fun on a whiteboard and blah, blah, blah. You know, typically the demand for energy, especially electricity, goes up in the day when we're all at work and we're up awake. And then it goes down at night when we're sleeping and 
the lights go off and the computers kind of go calm, etc. Factories aren't running, people aren't driving. And then back up again on this daily cycle. So that can be exacerbated by weather, hotter or colder weather, depending on the time of year. It can be exacerbated by storms and outages and a variety of other both natural and human caused things. So managing, feeding into that grid is challenging. You gotta, we use electricity in real time. So literally power plants are running <laughs> They're at the same cycle as your plug, you know, um, and and you have to manage electricity that way, or you have overload, you know, too much here or too little there. The challenge with the grid is making sure that you always have just the right amount of electricity on the grid to meet the demand and anticipating the bigger trends, but also things that you can't anticipate. That's not easy. So coal, and nuclear are, and even natural gas, but let's just talk about coal, nuclear, and hydro are called baseload, typically. And nuclear, they are always on. It's, you don't bring nuclear reactors up and down. The coal plants are typically always on because you don't want to bring those on up and down on a daily basis for sure, even a weekly basis. Think about lighting up your barbecue pit with charcoal. It, you know, it takes a while to get that coal, those coals hot and it's putting off emissions. So you don't want to do that. Want to run a nice and smooth, and then natural gas. It's like cooking inside in your kitchen. You're not going to cook with coal, charcoal in your kitchen. You're going to cook with natural gas, because I can turn it on. The gas comes on, boom! It's, the heat's there. I turn it off. It's gone. Even way better than electric pops. It takes a while for those to heat up, wasting energy. It takes a while for them to cool down, creating heat in my kitchen that I may or may not want. So natural gas is wonderful to follow the load, if you will. That's typical. That's the typical historical grid is coal, added nuclear, natural gas, and you mix and hydro. You mix all those together and you do a pretty good job. So let's start introducing things that are intermittent. The wind comes and goes, although typically you know when it's windier each day and when it's not, and, and that helps with your data modeling. And the sun comes and goes. We know things like night. <laughs> exactly when night's going to happen and when the sun's going to come up, but you don't know about the clouds and they come and go. So as those systems gather the light or the heat from the sun and the motion of the wind, it's fed into the grid in real time. And even when they're on your home, quite often they're not, you're not using that electron in your house. That's feeding a grid. The inverter in your garage takes it to a grid and then you get the, 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 the value for that from the power company that offsets your electricity cost. That's how most of them work. Some are direct, like we did in our Gunchukwu. You can, you can put up an inverter and charge a battery and that you're using your own electrons. So, and that's what you were doing in India. Yeah. Um, so you, this intermittent energy or source of heat and motion, let's say, or waves and tides comes into a system and the more you get the scarier it gets for the grid operators because <laughs> at times it's really nicely windy in West Texas and it will literally now provide the electricity the whole state needs for a minute or even minutes, sometimes even an hour, hmm. all of it, because there are a lot of turbines and it's the evening. So people are coming home from work, et cetera. We have now the wind and now it goes calm <laughs> and you go into this panic mode because your nuclear reactors are running and maybe your coal plants, although we even shut those down at night now in the summer because there's so much wind. And then their natural gas and you literally are on the phone calling operators of plants to fire them up and provide electricity. And that's expensive stuff. Okay. And, and, and so the more intermittent energy you get, the harder it is. Now I will hear people throwing stuff at the, you know, the radio right now or whatever. Hmm. You say, well, just if you have enough wind turbines somewhere, it's windy. And that's true. And if you have enough solar panels somewhere, it's sunny. Well, that's true, except for night. So you need them really far away. Uh, and if you have enough batteries, you can you can back that up. That's a lot of batteries. OK, it's not a small amount of batteries. These are giant batteries and a bunch of them. Hmm. So let's, if you have a lot of wind over there somewhere and it's windy there, but not here, basically you have to have enough wind in the whole system. So now instead of load following gas plants, you have redundant wind turbines. 
you have wind turbines that aren't turning a lot of the time because it's not windy, but you have enough up to provide the electricity for the whole grid area. So somewhere you're going to have redundancy. Pick your redundancy, uh, your favorite redundancy. And, and again, go back to the clean, dirty. Well, it's clean energy. Well, what does clean mean? Uh, you just have to ask that every single time. What does clean mean to you? And typically today, clean means no atmospheric emissions of CO2 or methane. Yeah. Okay, well, clean, that's not clean to me. Clean is mining. Is mining clean to you? Uh, no. <laughs> is, <laughs> is landfill disposal? No. So once you start to have normal conversations, people go, I, I like this conversation. I mm -hmm. like this nuance. I want to be involved in discussing these things because that's the real challenge. It's not that people don't want to. There's a few who don't want to in any area, but most want to be involved in these. In these I call it the radical middle. It's mm -hmm. radical because it's kind of lonely, but we're growing the radical middle. We want people to be involved in the real understanding of what it takes. And then we'll solve it. <laughs> I think that's a really, I mean, this is a good question for you because you're out there in the world. And is this something that you feel like there is the space to have this conversation with, uh, you know, emotions about what's right and what's wrong set aside for a minute and really dialogue about what the cost benefit analysis is between each of these different energy sources is, are you finding that conversation readily available where you go? It depends. I mean, it's not readily available. It depends. I think, uh, students in colleges. Yeah. They've learned one thing, but they're really interested in the bigger thing. Some policymakers are more willing, although I don't care if you're right or left, you have a set of voters and you're going to, take care of those voters. That's what elected officials do. <laughs> yeah, that's the prime directive. So they tend to, whether it's Cuomo not putting in a gas pipeline or Texas, uh, you know, taking care of flaring, which we shouldn't be doing in West Texas. Why are we flaring? Because we still can. It's cheaper, but we shouldn't be. And so there's, you know, you take care of your voters, all right, wherever you are. And, and so is it a conversation that's open somewhat, but it's, uh, it's a little tougher because we all have the places we're comfortable being. And it's rougher when you get into that radical middle and look at data and you might be wrong and you have to compromise and, and all sorts of things that go on. But that's where these big challenges are eventually going to get solved. And we got to grow the radical middle, not shrink it. I think we're shrinking it in the U.S. and Western Europe among ourselves right now. We continue to, to beat each other up rather than find ways to come together on some of these things. But that's only five or six hundred million people. There's still another seven billion people in the world that are trying to get some energy. Some have some, you know, but not as much as they need and others have none. So they're kind of looking at us going, whatever, we're going to move along and <laughs> And maybe that's where the, the seeds are going to be planted and you start to grow these conversations for a more balanced set of uh, both infrastructure as well as conversations around what is in, what, where is the environmental impacts. And as I mentioned earlier, the worst environments in the world are where it's poor, the soil and the water and the air, you, 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 where it's poor, they literally don't have a dime to spend on that. So we have to get to a certain level of economic standard or health before you can invest in the environment. And that's what energy allows. It's a beautiful waltz, but it's a waltz. There are three players in it. You can't take one of them out. Yeah. It, and you're, the dialogue you're, you're giving us right now and, and uh, the presentation of information to me sounds like the difference between, you know, a, a lean startup and a corporate giant. Uh, with its slow time to convert. And I almost think of the world as that, you know, when when you're talking here that, and maybe I'm way oversimplifying things, but when I think of the West, you know, it's a corporate giant and it's these emerging markets that are the lean startups that have don't have the luxury of inefficiency and will, you know, come up with, the innovations and in, in energy usage to make it as productive as possible. And, and maybe that's the source of innovation for this energy transition, as opposed to uh, the West where we're, like you said, I mean, we've come so polarized. I don't know. Is that, 
uh, what's your take on on that comment? I guess. I really like that, Adam. I, that's an interesting thought, and I hadn't thought about that that way before. Um, you know, anytime you make something simple, there's always nuance. But let's stay with the simple. You know, the very well established uh, economies that are running well and therefore have the luxury to have these conversations about things that as if we were going to give up available, affordable, reliable, secure energy. We're not going to do that. And we're not. Uh, and, and, then, and then almost not imposing, but sort of saying to the rest of the world, you should go with wind and solar because it's clean. Well, we're going to go with whatever gets us energy because we need an economy. And then it'll become clean because the economy will invest in clean. <laughs> it'll, right. And not just picking solar and wind, it'll invest in cleaning up yep. the energy Like I, I can't breathe the air in, in Delhi or wherever. So I, I'm going to have to come up just by right. virtue of the byproduct. Right. And in Beijing, the same. And, and it used to be in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the same too. But look at Pittsburgh now. So what you, you see is this transition in both fuels, but also the capacity to clean them up. In a coal power plant, when you have the, the bag scrubbers for the particulates and the ash, and you have, uh, you're still uh, scrubbing out socks and knocks, and there's another set of patch-ons to get the mercury out of the coal if it has the mercury. All of these add-ons take energy, and therefore they cost money. It's an energy penalty, so you have to burn more coal to actually run those things. But they're scrubbing all that stuff out. Not completely, but largely. As opposed to Vietnam, which you'll see in Switch On, where they're scrubbing none of the ash out. And it's all over the table where I'm sitting on a casual Sunday afternoon with local villagers. And they say, we're, we don't like it, but we're willing to do that because look at what electricity does for our economy. Here, we all have jobs, we all have families, we have lights in our home, we go to school. We're willing to give this for that. And and so there it is. The light bulb comes on. There's the, the nuance about evil coal. When in fact, to these people, it's not evil. It's kind of like Pittsburgh was 50 years ago. But now we have technology to help do that better. It just will make their electricity more expensive. So that's where the leadership and policy comes in. Vietnam is trying to compete with China to make all of our stuff. Right? Everything we... 50% of the world's stuff is made in Southeast Asia now. And, and they have to have cheap electricity to compete. So there, there, there's a trade-off here. And that's a, it's a phenomenal and fascinating nuance as, as we hear over and over zero emissions from both countries and companies now and other states. And you're going, what does zero emissions mean? And, and the only way they're getting there is either buying credits from somebody who's not emitting or buying all their stuff from someone else. So it's not a zero emissions. How many atmospheres are there in the world? Oh, there's one. You mean all my stuff's being made in Southeast Asia and they're emitting all the CO2? Yes. In fact, per product, even more per unit of product because they don't scrub it. Oh, so the atmosphere, it's not helping climate that I'm having to make all my stuff even though I'm clean? <laughs> no, yeah. it's not. You know, and, and well, wait a minute, that's, that's a shell game then. Yes, it is. <laughs> okay. Let's have the nuanced conversation, which says that doesn't address climate change, having other people make your stuff. What does address climate change? Lowering emissions. How are we going to do that? Replace things that are emitting, capture the emissions and put them away. Yeah. It, so it, it's solvable, but not if we want to stay um, either philosophical or political with it. So what if we just ignore, and, and maybe this is, again, I'm oversimplifying, but what if we just ignore the West right now and looked at the emerging markets and looking at them as the future of energy consumption? I mean, the, the de demographic curve is there. The uh, education is starting to increase to where, you know, they're moving away from this ag-based type of uh uh, you know, uh, nationhoods. And so if we just forget about the West right now and, and look at these emerging markets, you know, what energies, energy sources rise to the top? 
It's going to vary by economy, but the components that are going to rise to the top already have, because what you see already has already happened is China was consuming a fifth of the electricity of the United States just a few decades ago. And now they can a fifth and now they consume one and a half times the electricity of the United States. So in 1990, a fifth, 2020, 30 years later, one and a half times and going to go to two times real soon. So it's our China is the largest consumer of energy in the world and they're the largest economy in the world. Now on a per capita basis, they're not because they have a lot more capitas, <laughs> you know, 1.3 billion versus 300 and something million, four times more people. Yeah, just so per, per capita, not as much, but growing per capita, but in the aggregate much more. And they're using coal. So Southeast Asia gets, which represents about 4 billion people in the world, half the world's population in, in an, you put your finger on Bangkok, Thailand and draw a circle that goes into China and India. Under that circle is half the world's population. Okay. Everywhere else in the world is just the other half. And that half gets half their energy from coal, not power, total energy from coal. Okay. So it's already happened. Now, where, where can that go from here? Well, in the U.S., we've, we've decreased our coal consumption a lot. Germany's decreased coal consumption a lot, coal consumption a lot, et cetera, replacing it with natural gas, nuclear, and, and renewables. China could begin to do that. Southeast Asia can begin to do that, but it's going to take a long time because their coal plants, many of them are new, and they last 60 to 80 years. So they're not going to get rid of them. It's too much investment in that infrastructure. So the, the technology that could come to bear in forgetting the West for now, and by that I presume you mean in Canada, U.S., and Western Europe, um, not South America or Latin America. Correct, yeah. Um, you know, by, by doing that, what we're saying is how can we get lower environmental impact energy to the emerging world sooner? lower land use, less soil pollution, lower water consumptive use, better air quality, and lower atmospheric emissions. Then you start to talk about things that you do to the sources of energy that you have to make them less impactful. Coal, you know, carbon capture and sequestration, uh, putting it away uh, for the CO2 part, scrubbing out the socks and ox and mercury the articulates. That's coal. Costs more money. Got to do it. Natural gas, just a CO2 challenge when you burn it. Everything else, there's some sulfur gas, but everything else is pretty much not in methane, the things that are in coal. Um, nuclear, remarkably clean. You got to do something with the, the waste, you know, the fission products, um, the spent fuels. And people are remarkably safe, remarkably clean. Public doesn't understand it. Better education. Uh, oil, dirty, you know, my, drilling for it, refining it, moving it, combusting it, etc. It puts stuff into the atmosphere. It does. And into the local air as well. So gasolines and diesels, uh, we need to get, we've scrubbed some things out of these vehicles, but we can do better. And part of the way better would be better mileage. Twice as much mileage on the same gallon uh, is less is half the atmospheric impact on that same gallon, um, and then and and then even more efficient systems of collection of emissions from those CNG vehicles. Fantastic, you know, only a little CO two coming out of those and less, and none of the other stuff that comes with burning gasolines or diesels or jet fuels. Uh, electric vehicles, wonderful on the out of the out of the lack of the tailpipe, nothing. But then there's the whole making and mining, ma manufacturing, and disposing the batteries. And where's all that stuff going to come from? And where's it going to go? Now, I, I think we've lost the thread on, on hydrogen vehicles, uh, fuel cells. We've got to get that thread back. No emissions. Do a lot of great things that, that batteries don't do and feel a lot more like a combustion engine when you're using it. It's diff different sorts of electricity or carrier for electricity, hydrogen. So there's the three vehicles. You know, you got your liquids, you got your your hydrogen fuel cells, and you got your electric vehicles. 
And some of the liquids could be biofuels, but we've talked about those already. Good in a few places and mo mostly other places challenging. So this is, these are it. There's not a lot of other stuff out there. Geothermal would be great to ramp up if you have sources of good heat near the surface. But it's going to vary by each economy, each geopolitical region. And we've got to allow those regions to use the mix they have. And, and we need to set a set of standards, kind of global standards, if you will, for what we're trying to do. Minimize land impact, destructive water, local air, and atmosphere. Well, maybe I can minimize land and water and local air with the, with the energy that I'm blessed with, my resources. Maybe you can minimize atmospheric emissions with what you're blessed with, but you're going to use a lot more land to do it. So no judgment here. Let's, if people are contributing in different ways, then that's a good thing. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it, gives, it gives a lot more freedoms. You, you simply can't be prescriptive with an energy mix globally today. We just don't have those resources distributed that way. Yeah, and I, I think that was actually one of my questions that I'd written in watching your documentary, and and it does seem like a regional solutions um, might be the way of the future. And I, I think you have a, several different examples that you cover in, in your documentary that you know give a good idea of what that might look like between Norway and what was it Iceland that had the uh, the the huge thermal energy plant? Yeah, yeah, Iceland is. Unique. It's a geologic hotspot in the middle of the, on the Atlantic Ridge. You know, you got the heat of the earth a few hundred feet down. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's wonderful. And then but, that cool hydroelectric plant in, um, where was that? Somewhere in Scandinavia? Yeah. Yeah. We had, we featured several, but, but, uh, the biggest one is in Switch On. We go to what's called the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, the GERD, mm -hmm. and that's just being constructed in Ethiopia on the Sudanese border now. And it's remarkable. It's one of the, it's like three times the size of our Hoover Dam. And it's going to provide electricity for 50 million people in Ethiopia, plus some surrounding states or countries. Uh, so that's being constructed. Um, right. You just, every region has different possibilities for resources. And we got to use those, but have a set of environmental goals that are not purely co2 related and i know there's those that are passionate that climate change is the only issue of our time and it's an issue to be sure but it's not the only issue other things that we have to continue to do to inhabit this earth and make it sustainable for the future yeah so uh i i feel like you know we're coming to a good stopping point here can you leave us with uh two things the first is, uh, can you give, give us an idea of, for, for people that are in the oil and gas space, uh, some tips, I guess, on how to have open dialogue with people that are in the middle and on the fence, or maybe people that are off to the right that we can, that you've had experience in, in dialoguing with and, and found some successful talking points. And then the second um, is can you just give us a, an outline of some of the resources of where people can access you and and all the things that you're working on uh, so they can reach out after uh, listening to the podcast here today? Sure, sure. Let me start with the second one just to kind of get out of the way. I think a lot of what we're doing is at the website switchon.org. You can stream the films there, and, and then we have over 300 little short format primers and 101 films and energy lab and site visits and interviews and all sorts of rich material. I also put all of my PowerPoint slides there in packets, 20 packs by topic, animated PowerPoints you can download. And I have an MP4 under them that you can hear what I would say and then make your own talks. So I would give, I would charge everybody who's in the energy world to put together your own talks. They all have their data references, etc., And go start talking to a school your kid's school or, you know, a civic group or scout troop or a church, whatever it is, start speaking about energy. And that's the way this conversation comes to the radical middle. Because other people are speaking loudly and they, they have a certain perspective. And it's not a broad one, okay? It's not wrong, but it's not broad. It, it's not inclusive. And I think that we all need to take the charge here. 
to get out and start to speak. So I make all my slides available for that and a bunch of other resources there. We're making another film for museums, which is wonderful short film. We're making course materials for high school AP environmental science class nationwide, H it's called, and Switch is going to be the energy content for about a month there. Lots of things we're doing to try to get this information more broadly distributed. And how do you visit with people who, you know, are strongly opinionated? And we all are. It's easy to get defensive. I think that I, I do and everybody does when somebody comes at you attacking. So you have to put on your best um, defense shield <laughs> and, and kind of listen to the best of your ability and try to hear what it is that most bothers. And you see some questions will help there. Um, you know, I hear what you're saying about oil and gas. And, and in fact, yeah, oil and gas, does, it is. You know, we drill for it and we move it and we refine it and we burn it. It has a lot of challenges. Um, it does, you know, and listen and so agree there with that, but then say, and, and can, what kinds of energy are you thinking about that don't have those challenges? And, and then they say, well, solar and wind, or that's typically what you hear. Say, well, that's interesting because they're renewable and they're sustainable. Well, that's interesting. You know, certainly wind turbines, the wind blows, not always, but in the sun. But of course, as you know, because you're a smart person, we're talking, <laughs> um, that's a giant wind turbine and it's made out of composite metals and coppers and 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 it gets moved there and, and all that stuff comes from mining and, and what do you think about mining and i usually stop and ask that at that point and they kind of look at you weird i say well <laughs> let's go to solar panels you know where do you think all the stuff to make those comes from I, i'm a geologist i love mining but it comes from the earth and then even more so batteries and so now we go through these three things and we're thinking about mining and how do they get made and where and how do they get moved and then where do they go when they wear out? Because all of those things wear out and we talk about landfill disposal. And then I, I kind of say, look, I like renewable energy. I've installed it <laughs> in a country, but mining and manufacturing and landfill disposal, to me, that's kind of a big environmental impact. It's not in the atmosphere, but it's on, our, it's on nature, it's mm -hmm. on land. And now we're having a conversation about the impacts of things that isn't defensive about oil and gas, I say, but I love renewables because in a billion people have no energy. That'll help them. And in other places, it's a great supplement like Texas to other things. And it provides energy and energy does so many good things. Everything in the world depends on energy. Look at all the good it does. Let's not throw it away any kind. They all have impacts, but let's talk about how we can clean them up. And then we get in a conversation and I'm there in five minutes, three minutes even about, yep, they each have a challenge. How do we clean those up? They all do good things. Let's talk about the, the environmental impacts, not the fuels themselves. And, and, you know, that's, you know, if there are folks like AOC who doesn't get that or else doesn't want to get that. But I don't think that she's the common person out there. Um, you know, that's been, that's gotten her a lot of political traction and gotten her elected as a 30-year-old person into the U.S. Congress. And that's fine passionate and uh, I think she has the potential to be more broadly educated. I think if we were to begin to talk about mining in New York again in order to construct all the renewable energy, that might open up some conversations that are necessary. Yeah. Well, I, I, I guess first of all, thank you for uh, coming on the show here today. Uh, also, thank you to Michael Beinford uh, for doing the first uh, co-host with me on the show. Pleasure. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, Scott, thank you so much for, for coming on. And also just for, I think, being a, a good neutral voice for the industry. Um, I don't know if that's your intention or not, but I, I think it helps alleviate some of the, the backlash and pressure that we get um as an industry and, and people's perceptions of us and i feel like you're you're doing us a service of you know being out there and having those conversations so we're, we're grateful for that well you bet and let me let me give you a simple line because i went through kind of a long set of lines you know when if you're asked what you do don't don't be embarrassed i work in the oil and gas industry and i've said this before but i mean it i, I say i work in the oil and gas industry and 
I lift the world out of poverty. What do you do? And that's a, that changes the conversation instantly. What do you mean they lift the world out of poverty? Well, energy lifts the world out of poverty. I work in the energy business and lift the world out of poverty. What do you do? Remind me again. <laughs> and that's it. That sets a stage that's very different because my dad worked in the oil and gas business and so does my son. And I'm proud of them. You know, they, they changed the world for all of us and continue to. So let's not ever be ashamed or embarrassed by producing energy that runs the engine of the world. It is a very noble thing to do. We've got to continue to clean up our impacts on the environment in doing that. Well, thank you, Scott. Um, uh, we appreciate your time. You bet. I've enjoyed it, guys. And keep up the good work. Yeah. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. Take care now. You too. Take care. On the next podcast, we take a whole new approach. And Evan Anderson from Osberg joins me as co-host of the show as we sit down with David Forsberg. David is an investment professional focused on technology companies with digital and automation solutions for the energy industry. It's going to be a very interesting conversation. We have two thought leaders in the oil and gas technology space talking about present challenges and future outlook for energy technologies. Both of these guys have a ton of experience behind their belt, and I think you'll find a lot of really insightful ideas coming out of the conversation. As always, if you have any recommendations for future guests on the show, please visit us on our website at oilintel.com. And finally, if you're a professional or part of an organization that's looking to create some change within the business, but looking for external help, Oil Intel is here to connect you with the right people. You can send me personally an email at adam at oilintel.com. That's adam at oilintel.com. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and frack on.